Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening Colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping the worlds of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Tom Broughton, founder and CEO of Cubits, a modern spectacles company. After a decade of, as Tom says, career procrastination that spanned accountancy, traffic forecasting, children's television and, I believe, a short-lived career as a milkman, Tom then turned to one of his first passions, his love for wearing glasses. Having saved for 12 years and undertaken a spectacle-making apprenticeship, Tom launched Cubits online in 2013 from his kitchen in Cubit Street, London, named after the Cubit brothers. We'll find out who they were very shortly. On a mission to democratise bespoke spectacles and create a better, more responsible industry, Cubits now has 11 stores in the UK and over 100,000 customers across 100 countries. Welcome. Thank you, Elliot. Sporting a nice pair of glasses, that's you, not me, although I have obviously, as we've discussed, I put on my glasses, for my reading glasses. Why the obsession with the things on your face? Where did that well, come from? I mean, I think, first of all, because they sit on your face, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right in the middle, right? I can see them. And I think anyone, I mean, I just think glasses are a really like, fascinating cultural object. I think anyone that's, that started wearing glasses at school will probably have a different relationship with it, right? Because, you know, when you're in your class you'll immediately become the specky four-eyed kid. It becomes part of your kind of, you know, an extension of you, really, your most distinguishing feature. And I think growing up, I could never understand why. If you have this object that you need to wear and you have to wear every single day from the moment you wake up to when you go to bed at night, you know, you might as well have something that you love. And that kind of contrasted with, I think, how most people think about glasses, which is, I don't know, like a, something that they reluctantly own, even more reluctantly wear, and the whole experience is kind of akin to going to a dentist, something that you have to do in this periodic basis. But it always felt to me that there's an opportunity to sort of flip that around and actually turn it into a process and a product that people really love and have something that sits in their face that they're, they're proud of. Would you describe yourself as a creative person? Because what you've just talked about is essentially smashing together two completely random thoughts, which is, well, of course, many people, and I, I think I heard 69% of people wear glasses. Yeah, is, exactly. is that right? Yeah, yeah, 69%, which I thought was extraordinary. And I suppose thinking about it, that means, you know, just an over two in every three people you meet wears glasses, about right. But that, with the idea that that can be a creative thing, strikes me as an innovation in itself. Did, did you ever view it like that? Or was it just, why are they ugly? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the really beautiful things about glasses, which is why I'm still so you know, after eight, nine years of doing it now, I'm still so passionate about it, is they are this weird fusion of all these different things, right? They're, they are a medical device. They are a pure manifestation of physics and refraction. They're a piece of engineering. They are a piece of fashion, a pure piece of design, materiality, phrenology. They're this, like, really weird mismatch of stuff from all these different pursuits and, and disciplines, and yeah. And then they actually change people's lives. Um, and, and it's even more than sort of 69%, right? It's, it will, you know, it gets every, it's, you know, what is it? Death, taxes and glasses get everyone in the end. It's like, it's so ubiquitous and such a strange, fascinating, captivating, intoxicating product and industry that I think it's really hard kind of not to love. You set the business up back in 2013, as I said earlier. You started getting funded, as I understand it, a bit later. 
I think it was around 2014, 15, mm-hmm. that you started getting money into the business. And I think I heard you say in one of the clips I was listening to that the biggest challenge you faced, in fact, it was a clip on this very program, I've now remembered, Future Shapers 2016, which was a while ago. The biggest challenge is getting used to having challenges, you said, back then. Is that still true today? As you now you've got your, your empire building. At that point, you had one store. Now you've got 10. And are the challenges just as big and just as daunting? Yeah, I would say so. I'd say that. <laughs> They're bigger, but you have more tools in your like apparatus to control them, I would say. And I think, I'm trying to remember, take me back to 2016, but I think what really sh- surprised me, shocked me, and I wasn't ready for, was that the way people go through education, the way you go through work, you know, you're kind of taught to take a problem and then kind of find the best answer to solve that particular thing, right? It's the way the whole, yeah, the education grading system is based, right? There's a kind of right or wrong. You have to methodically work through them all and try and get as many correct as possible. Then you suddenly start a business and there is an immeasurable number of things being thrown at you all the time, most of which you've never done before and you have no idea how to tackle. So I very much started with that kind of academic approach to try and solve those problems, but you can't. Mm. You just have to get used to making endless, countless, innumerate mistakes and just accepting that they're part of the whole process. And hopefully you don't make too many fatal mistakes or any fatal mistakes and you can survive it. But that was really probably the first three years. I think now as we've got a bit bigger, we can hire people who actually know what they're doing so that they can help you reduce the number of mistakes you make. But yeah, I think those set of early problems and challenges are replaced by a, a different set, really. Interesting what you say about education, because of course you're right, in, in the way we're all schooled, it is about a binary answer. And even in the more artistic and art subjects, you know, you still have a sense of what the right answer is. But here you are in a completely free-form world where you're trying to anchor, as you said, you know, kind of you're trying to make the right decisions. Where did you go, though, in your head for those answers, apart from just getting it wrong? And apart from your own experience, were there people that you looked to to say, well, you've done this sort of thing before, you've built a business online, you've built a brand, you've built real estate, as it were, and actually you've done an experience? Or, or did this all come from you? Was everything practically your your call? Yeah, it's a bit it's like a mixture of both, really. And, and- I did reach out to a whole bunch of people. I remember coming up with a list of people who had sort of been through the process and built businesses that I admired and just hit, yeah, hitting them all up on LinkedIn. Probably tried to get in touch with 30 or 40 people. What was amazing is quite a few reply. And if a few, you know, I even met him. There's a chap called Nick Wheeler who started Charles Tirrett. He's been on this very program. Oh, okay. A very knowledgeable man. Yeah, so a I, nice just, man. I hit, him, hit him up and he replied in two minutes. And then later on that afternoon, I was over in his office, you know, taking advice like a sponge. And so, you know, what is amazing is I think there's a lot of people that have been through a similar process and had a lot of the same troubles and kind of want to share the lessons they've learned. So anyone going through the same process again, I would absolutely encourage them to hustle. I mentioned earlier as well that you've done lots of different sorts of roles. Do you think actually that the experiences you had, the varied experiences around the media world, the creative industries, I think you were a senior consultant at Deloitte's for a period of time as well. Do you think that's actually given you stuff as well that through osmosis you've gone oh i know things i didn't even know i knew yeah i mean the funny thing is when you suddenly realize that stuff that you thought was completely irrelevant actually and in a completely different discipline suddenly becomes incredibly relevant like incredibly what? Give, me, give me give me a specific if you can oh like you know i spent i spent a year and a half trying to model traffic in london for transport for london it was when they introduced the congestion charging scheme building these huge excel models to try and understand how yeah cars would move around different zones of london right 
stop doing that. I never thought that would be coming hand again. And obviously, traffic forecasting is not particularly relevant to glasses, but what it allowed me to do is gave me an analytical viewpoint which allowed me to model things like when you're opening a store, how, how you should think about the inflow and outflow of people, how you should try and, you know, uh, create like a financial framework around any of the kind of investments you're doing. And so, you know, those kind of transferable skills, I think, have been super helpful. And yeah, and, and I think, you know, my 10 to 12 years of working was very much kind of jack of all trades, master of none, really. And I think that's kind of continued. Stay with me for much more from my business shaper today. It's Tom Broughton and he's the founder of Qubit. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes talking about the relevance of traffic flow and the taste of black pudding and the importance of both in Western culture or something like that. Right now, though, we're going to hear a taster from the Michigan Academy digital sessions. They can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Michigan Dere, Susie Sendama and Emily Dorotheo talk about how fashion brands can be more sustainable while maintaining profitability and what consumers should be doing to support sustainable fashion. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. New mindsets need to be adopted at both business and consumer level, but it's it's difficult to see why brands would make the changes that are needed unless there's a change in the law. From a consumer perspective, what can we as buyers do to put more pressure on the way suppliers operate and support sustainable fashion? So certainly from the perspective of taking buying decisions, I think there's quite a few things that consumers can do. The first thing that they can do is when they come to buy a product, they can embrace Olivia Firth, who was the founder of the Green Carpet Challenge. Um, She came up with a, will you wear it at least 30 times test? Um, So if you do think you'll wear a product at least 30 times, then yes, buy it. If you don't think you will, then don't. You can also avoid environmentally unfriendly fabrics. So for example, denim is incredibly thirsty. It needs a lot of water. Anything with sequined or glitter that's been bleached or anything made from nylon or polyester because unfortunately they release a lot of microplastics when they're washed. You can also do some investigating to see what actually what sort of what credentials the brand that you're thinking of buying from has. So we have what's known as the B Corp accreditation and that's a certification for responsible businesses. And I think one of the most famous retail examples of that is Patagonia, the outdoor clothing company. You know, and as a firm mission, we've got a long-standing legal partnership with B Lab, who issue the B Corp criteria, and we can provide businesses with legal advice about how they can go and certify uh, and get a B Corp stamp of approval. You've also got lots of material out there online. Um, you've got everything from Common Objective, who have a list of global ethical brands. You've got Positive Luxury, who have a list of ethical brands who enjoy the, their butterfly stamp of approval. And so any luxury brand that has the blue butterfly mark on it has been confirmed by Positive Luxury as being sustainable. You can also look online at a brand's website to see their environmental statement. We've got a website called Lawfully Chic that has lots of ideas for sustainable brands. And then so I think there's definitely a lot that you can do at the buyer end. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop the words jazz and shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you've got a smart speaker, innumerable ways here of getting to this, you can ask it to play Jazz Shapers and there you'll find a taster of our recent shows. But back to today's guest, it's Tom Broughton, founder and CEO of Qubits, a modern spectacles company. Right at the beginning, you were talking about the, the fusion of all these different disciplines. 
technology has become your friend. And I think, again, it's clear that you, you're interested in the, not just the history, but the future of this industry that you're in. Tell me a little bit about what role technology is now playing in, in what you call democratizing the wearing of glasses. Well, I, mean, I think it's worth saying, the process of buying glasses hasn't really changed that much over probably 300 years, right? And the last sort of 20, 30 years, it's played pretty static. I have like a different view of the future, which is that I think absolutely within our lifetime, probably the next decade, the process instead of going to an optician and then sort of sorting your way through a random smorgasbord of frames with sizing that makes absolutely no sense, often products in just one size, which is absolutely bonkers, by the way, and then finally finding something you like and choosing it, I just think, I don't think that will exist. Where we're trying to take it is we've developed some technology, which we call Hero internally, which essentially uses the true depth cameras in the latest generation of smartphones to scan a face. It then takes a face, turns that face into a set of parametric measurements. It will then take a frame, use a machine learning algorithm to recommend a frame. You can customize it if you want. You can say yes or no, swipe left, swipe right, all that kind of stuff. And when you're happy with it, it can parametrically fit the frame to your face. So that solves sizing. You don't have to worry about sizing. It uses actually intelligent data-driven learning recommendations rather than all the normal nonsense that, you know, work out if your head is an apple or a pineapple or a cucumber or whatever they normally say. Um, and then when you're happy with it, you press go, and it turns that into a three-dimensional CAD drawing that goes into a production queue. So the idea being that every frame is made to order to you, whoever you are and wherever you are in the world. And I think that has the opportunity to revolutionize the industry because, you know, you don't need stock. There's minimal wastage. You don't have problems with fit. Hopefully people have a product they love. You can serve all those people. I wouldn't even say they're on the edge, but people just can't get the right sizing, which is a, a, a genuine legitimate issue. If you, you know, 69% of the world's population need this thing and most products are designed for the average head. And, you know, there is no average. There is this, you know, beautiful heterogeneity of all faces all around the world. And, like, we, we really think that this technology can be used to serve those people. And then when you get onto things like 3D printing and additive manufacturing, you've got this really, really kind of intoxicating, captivating phase of this, yeah, 300-year-old industry. So, yeah, that's where we're going. And the economics of it work? Because I've always been intrigued by the bespoke thing and the challenge that that has for uniformity, which is where the more, you know, commoditized... Yeah, but that, that's the kind of, I guess, the great thing about it, right? Because one of the reasons bespoke is so expensive is it's so incredibly time-consuming, right? You have to go and sit down with a trained associate who takes all your measurements, turns them into a set of drawings, you review them, you go back and forth. You can't see it in 3D a lot of the time. You know, it, it takes a long time, and, you know, humans are expensive. The thing about the technology is all of that stuff is done in the cloud... So that from the consumer's perspective, there's no cost. So we, what we want to do is try and deliver a fully bespoke product to anyone in the world for less than they would pay for just a, you know, something off the shelf in a, in a high street optician. And we really think we can do that through clever technology. Has this been a vision of yours right from the beginning of setting this business up or has this emerged as the access to cheap technology and the ability to sort of use, you know, algorithms and the like has, has become easier to access? I mean, a bit of both. So, like, you know, when we very first started, one of the principles was to sort of revive Bespoke because it felt like a really missing part of the, the market, really, the industry. I think as we've realised that there are these, like, you know, all of the kind of stars are aligning with, with access to CNC machining and head scanning and materiality, We've developed this bit of technology, but we, you know, we've been working on this thing now for four years, I think, on and off. So it's, you know, it's been a long time coming. And it will take 
five, 10, 15 years, who knows how many years until it actually turns to the mainstream, right? Because most people only ever buy a pair of glasses every two or three years, and there's a lot of inertia. They're used to doing what they're used to doing. And so to, to actually change people's behavior to start scanning their head or downloading apps is really, really tough. But, um, you know, we're going to give it a good go. The technology piece, the vision, you've got to find people, great people, and immediately it's clear that you have a, an interesting brain Tom, you kind of are interested in lots of things and you want to get into the the depths of what glasses are about, where they sit culturally, where they've come from and so on and so forth. How do you find people and have you found people that kind of have the same passion and the same intellect as you? I mean, the good thing is you can normally tell glasses wearers because they've got glasses on, right? <laughs> you can normally <laughs> tell, their, tell their prescription based on... And, it, you know, we don't only employ people that wear glasses, but it does really make a difference. Our, our company definitely skews heavily towards glasses wearers. Finding people, you know, is always the hardest thing, right? But I think, you know, we look for, and it's particularly with the technology, just look for people that have both the technical capability, but also the kind of passion, borderline obsession. And so we've built a team... It's all over the world, frankly. Like at the moment, I think the people that are developing it, there's a chap in Argentina, one in France, one in the Ukraine. And why the, why the spread? Is it just because these are where the people are and, and post-COVID it doesn't matter where people sit? Yeah, a bit of that. And also just the sort of specialist skills we're, we're looking at. You know, people that understand the, the fusion between, uh, you know, 3D modelling and optics. There's not, you know, that many people. So they are reasonably specialist. I mean, and you know, it works really well, especially, you know, as we're, we're straddling various time zones so we can have people working on it probably 16 to 18 hours a day. But that means you need to understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Do, do you? As I said, jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> I think I can get to sort of six out of 10 on most of the topics, but there we, we bring them in to move it from six out of 10 to nine out of 10. And what are they buying into, do you think, when they meet you and they think about your vision? I genuinely think it's the opportunity to change a massive industry, right? It's a $150 billion industry that's been around 300 years and hasn't really changed. And I think it's not that it hasn't changed. I think the standards are quite poor, frankly. I think for the general punter, the process of buying glasses is not good. It's slow and expensive and confusing, and you're often upsold stuff that you don't necessarily need. There's a kind of distrust for the, a lot of the process. And that's before you even get on to some of the things we talked about before, where there's a bunch of people out there who just can't get frames that fit them. Mm. for whatever reason. And so the opportunity to take that industry and in our own kind of little upstarty, ferally way, really sort of take that on and take on some of the big boys, I think is quite like exciting for the right type of person. And being feral <laughs> and being a bit naughty and being a bit of a revolutionary, what does that look like on a daily basis? Because, you know, constant revolution, Che Guevara, he probably got quite tired after a while. I mean, do you ever think... I just don't want to be a revolutionary anymore. I just want to kind of manage the status quo. Or is that antithetical to your philosophy? Yeah, because that's why you do it, right? If you lose that, what's the point? I mean, I, I start, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to start a company was because I sort of decided that I was kind of unemployable and that, you know, I, I wasn't good with taking direction or taking, taking orders from people. So that was really the only option for me. So that's continued to this day. So it got, if it got to the point we weren't doing that, I wouldn't want to do it anymore. That's and the fun bit. And your funders buy into that. They go, yeah, he's unmanageable, but in a good way. To a certain, to a certain degree. <laughs> I mean, I think if they're on the show now, they might have a, yeah, a different set of perspectives. I mean, I think they obviously have a, a different set of like motivations for being part of it, right? And what you need to try and do is make those motivations align. And I think we've been okay at that. Five out of ten, I'd give us. Um, we could always be better. But yeah, that's the, it's, it's always going to be a constant struggle, right? 
they're still in there, so I think it's probably more than a five out of ten. Stay with me for my final chat with Tom Broughton, and we've got a beautiful chat from Robert Glasper and Jill Scott. That's all coming up in just a moment. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Tom Broughton is my business shaper just for a few more minutes. I read somewhere that you tried to um, resurrect your great-great-grandfather's business a few years ago, about four years ago. I think he made boots, Broughton boots. And it got me thinking, and, and the way you've been talking today and the, this kind of confluence of the aesthetic, the engineering, and the running your own business thing. Are you a bit of a romantic? Is there something about you that says, I need to be in love with the thing I'm doing for it to really matter? I mean, 100%. I couldn't do something that I didn't love. I mean, otherwise, what's the point, right? I mean, that's the great, you know, at some point we're all going to be dead, right? So we might as well fill those, hopefully, years <laughs> between now and then with stuff you love. Uh, yeah, I just couldn't do it in any other way. But then I also think I, I have a strong feeling that there's a kind of, like a right way to do something. And maybe that is being kind of overly romantic or, you know, even partly naive, but how to have a business really how to build a business and how to hire people and develop them and all that kind of stuff it feeds kind of into everything we do which makes it hard right because you're kind of striving for a certain you know sort of excellence in a lot of things but when it comes together it's really worthwhile and when you walk past the, do you call them shops or stores or what, what's the or, yeah or practices practices i knew i knew you'd have a word for it <laughs> i could just i could sense there was another word that when you walk past the practice and and you know i said my local one is in is in hampstead on the high street and it looks very pretty just on the corner of the high street in gayton street i think mm-hmm. we said yeah. gayton road is there a sense of an enormous sense of well-being as a as a pop group may have said many many years ago do you get that or is it more you looking for the issue you looking for the fat one frame's not quite in the right place or something isn't polished or the window isn't quite clean. I mean, what, what's the attitude as you walk into your own practices? I mean, it depends what mood I'm in. But, um, no, I'm extremely proud of the, of the stores. Again, we opened our first one in 2013, having no retail experience at all. I had no idea how to open a store. And, you know, we literally got the keys, moved a bunch of stuff in, and then I worked in there at the start with Joe, who's our head of operations at the moment. And Trish spent a year trying to work out how you open a store and made... So many mistakes. I mean, yeah, I can't believe none of them were fatal, to be honest. But, you know, we got the confidence then, which allowed us to open, yeah, now up to 11 stores. And each one is uniquely designed, and they're all designed to try and celebrate the people of the environs, right? Because what we're offering is not just about sticking a bunch of product on shelves. We're offering a service. We want to be part of the community. And so, yeah, we'll always take cues so that, you know, the Hampstead site is inspired by the kind of the artistic movement from Hampstead in the 1920s and 1930s, you know, Moore and Hepworth and all of those really, really influential modernist designers. And that feeds through into, I think, the atmosphere of the store and like the bits that I'm most proud of are actually, you know, you walk into the store and there's people there and there's a sense of atmosphere. And I think we've achieved what we set out to, which is trying to make an optician a place where people actually want to hang out. Mm. You know, we don't just want them to come in like a dentist practice, come in do what needs to be done and then get out as fast as possible. We want them to hang out. We want them to, you know, chat. We want them to, you know, storytell, imbibe. We just want them in the stores. And so I think when, when we've achieved that, it uh, definitely gives you a sense of pride. And of course, the challenge in that is that, as you said, and we said that there's a retail revolution going on, you obviously got an online offering. It's really important. There will be a change and the change is coming. It's been sped up, as we know, over the last couple of years. But you still see a place for those practices in the community actually offering something very special and a special feeling for someone looking for a pair of glasses absolutely i mean i think 
you know, we are we like to go places, right? I mean, over the last 18 months, that's been restricted somewhat, but like we are, you know, social beings and we like that experience of speaking to other human beings. And so for us, the technology and physical retail have a beautiful symbiotic relationship where it can sort of support both at different times of people's wants and needs. And, you know, we will we'll always have stores and we'll always invest heavily in in making them incredible, beautiful places in which to hang out and have an eye exam. Continue enjoying your 40th year. I mean, it makes you think, actually, you were pretty young when you set up on this journey. But in a way, you were saying, no, no, I was very old. I was in my 30s. But, um, you know, I think you've got a long, long way of fun and, and great success to go, which is super. Lovely to have chatted to you today, Tom. Just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Oh, so I've chosen uh, Memphis Soul Stew by King Curtis. So I've chosen this one because it's an amazing soul, <laughs> which is a good place to start. But it's used, I, I used to run with my best friend from home. We used to run a kind of northern soul night in Leicester, where I grew up in, in my early 20s, all, all pre-cubits. And we always used to put this on when we started, partly because, I mean, you can't listen to it and not start tapping your feet. You can't not turn the volume up. It's, it's yeah, amazing. And it's sort of a celebration of the virtuoso instrument player, but also just music more generally and I don't think you can listen to it and not smile so that's why Memphis Soul Stew by King Curtis the brilliant song choice of my business shaper today Tom Broughton he talked about being in love with what he did and boy could you feel his passion his energy and his understanding of the industry he talked about the importance and understanding the role that wearing a pair of glasses plays in somebody's life indeed 69% as we said of people wear glasses he talked about being a revolutionary, someone who wants to fundamentally change the industry using technology and making people feel great about the experience. And on that note, he wants to make his practices places that people want to hang out in. Absolutely brilliant stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.